0: and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Glenn Stallsmith. Glenn is a pastor who serves two United Methodist churches in rural North Carolina. He's also a THD student at Duke Divinity School. For 12 years, he lived in the Philippines, working as an ethnomusicologist with Wycliffe Bible Translators. He's also the reviews editor of Global Forum on Arts and Christian Faith. I give you Glenn Stallsman. Glenn, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here. I'm a long-time listener, first-time guest.
0: So you are a Duke student. Yep. I heard that there's a saying that, you know how you know if your pastor went to Duke? <laughs> How's that? They'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a, true. A Duke, <laughs> a, a Duke Divinity grad told me that, so it's...
1: it's I think that's ridiculous. true. I'm, a, I'm what they call a double Dukie. I... uh I just graduated with my MDiv last year and they they kept me on to do the doctor of theology so Nice. Yeah.
0: Well, doctor intrepid or doctor to be. Right. Let's delve into our text for the week. Excellent. And so our first text is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, and this is uh this reading here, uh, Isaiah 40:21 through 31. It's a, I think for at least people with Decent familiarity with the Old Testament. It'll probably be the reading itself will be somewhat familiar, right?
1: It should be. You yeah know?
0: Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. I mean, people might not have the whole context for it, but a lot of people that have been in church a while uh, and know their Bibles a little bit will probably know this. Some of the images and stuff will be evocative for them. I think. Yeah, right?
1: yeah the the mount up with wings like eagles was painted in the hallways of Asbury University where I did my bachelor's degree. Uh, Asbury Eagles, you know, was the was the motto, or the mascot, rather. So, yeah, lots of familiar images here in these verses.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting, right? I mean, just for context, it, there's a great book, which I'd recommend, uh, Theology of the Prophetic Books, The Death and Resurrection of Israel by Don Gowan, who is one of my teachers at Pittsburgh Seminary. And he says, he has, he has this really short summary of what scholars call Second Isaiah, right? Like this section of Isaiah that seems to be maybe from a different author for a different time. Like there's kind of a, a, a shift in literary concerns and, 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 and seeming context. He says, you know, the, these passages from, and I think he would say that's like from Isaiah 40 through like 55. He's, he sums up the message this way. Uh, you can summarize it one paragraph. One, the Lord has raised up Cyrus to bring the Babylonian empire to an end. B, he's done this because the time of punishment or exiles, uh, which Israel deserved, is over. They're still God's elect and he's forgiven their sins. C, he can do this because he is the only God and has created everything there is. D, he will lead Israel back to their homeland, and Jerusalem will be rebuilt in splendor. C, or E, the nations will bow down to Israel, recognizing they're the favorites of the only God. F, all this is so that Yahweh shall be glorified in all the earth. <laughs> and then he, he looks at how that's all elaborated in those 15 chapters. And
1: I think you see a lot of
0: those themes just in this little snippet from Isaiah 40
1: absolutely yeah uh you get the the whole you know a paradox of transcendence versus imminence, which runs all through isaiah all through the old testament but um you know don't let's not perhaps get too cozy with uh the warm fuzzies of god because you know he sits above the earth and yet he calls us by name so it just seems you can't go too far in isaiah without you know trying to bring those two things together
0: yeah, it's interesting too because I think we often think that that's that the sense that we feel as human beings, pretty tiny in the universe, is somehow like a uniquely modern feeling mm. or something, mm-hmm. because of what we know about the cosmos and the expansive nature of our knowledge of of, of just how vast it is. But it seems that that's the that the readers
1: of this ancient text share that feeling,
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or at least or at least Isaiah thinks they
1: should. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And there should be some kind of like overturning or overthrowing of, of dualities too, which, you know, we've just, you know, a lot of churches will just heard Mary's words, the Magnificat in in Advent, and you get some of those very same things, um, raising up the weak, uh, giving power to the faint. Um, maybe you could just bring the choir out. Maybe they still remember uh, singing uh their parts and Handel's Messiah from early December, and you can just uh, <laughs> dust off some of those uh, some of those pieces to sing again this week too.
0: My wife and I went to every year the Philadelphia Orchestra does uh, Handel's Messiah, and the performance this year was just so arresting. I mean, I, <clears throat> I recommend everybody to go to it on Christmas. If you, I mean, it's just an amazing, amazing thing.
1: Yeah, we sat through three hours of it at Duke Chapel too. Yeah, first time I ever sat through the whole thing.
0: Yeah, it's powerful. Yeah, especially if it's done well. Yes. Yeah, like many things, like many, <laughs> like, many songs. <laughs> many, if it's done well, it it, uh, it helps. I mean, you know, not that you know, and God can use, as Carl Barth said, anything. You know, a flute concerto, uh, you know, communist manifesto, or a dead dog to speak. But the sweetness of it sometimes sounds better if it's done well.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and in a nice space with a with a good seat doesn't hurt.
0: It's interesting. There's a, a commentator. Oswald, who wrote a book in 1986. It's actually referenced in a book by Peter Lewis called The Message of the Living God. And he says, he's quoting John Oswald. He says, um, what, what Isaiah says at the at the earlier part of this chapter, he says at its end, because he's thinking about this, even used go tired and weary young men will stumble and fall. But those who hope the Lord will renew their strength, they'll soar in wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. The walk and not be faint he quotes Oswald saying, "The spirit that breathes out destruction for all human pride is the same spirit who speaks the eternal word of life over all withered and faded human hopes mm. here's the paradox introduced at the beginning of the book. If I insist I am permanent, then I become nothing. If I admit that God alone is permanent, then he breathes his permanence on me. nice as I think right, oftentimes in our fragility our 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 tendency is to do what it takes to give ourselves a false sense of permanence. Yeah, and yet what Isaiah is Oswald is seeing it, and I think if there's something to this, he's saying, "Lean into it." Mm-hmm. Like, you're. you're there really permanence isn't something you can achieve. You can only receive it.
1: I I remember I used to serve as a as a missionary uh, in Asia, and we had a, a devotional speaker come to one of our conferences, and he was an Asian theologian. And he set up the the contrast that we see in the in the first psalm, um, you know, contrasting those who are planted by streams of water, who are deeply rooted and don't move, uh, versus the chaff that gets blown around. And and he's very subtly over several minutes of giving this devotion, kind of showed us missionaries that we were the chaff, <laughs> that that we define ourselves by running around and just chasing every wind of this or that, and and uh, kind of. Ch- chastened us a little bit on um, how we found our identity. Um, so yeah, uh, we, we, we try to link ourselves to the work of God, and yet sometimes um, actually end up being what's impermanent. So let's you move on to the
0: epistle reading which is a pretty interesting one. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 16 through 23, where Paul talks about how uh, he only boasts in the gospel and that he basically says he's become all things to all people. Now, you could read this uncharitably and picture Paul as the, the salesman who you're trying to get out of his office. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he just will not like. He's trying. He's a closer. He, he, he's he's a closer. But uh, but you know, I mean, that, that's kind of I, my sense is that's not really what he's saying. There's this. He says, you know, that he's and, and you know, this is interesting because it echo. I mean, Luther echoes this right in, in the freedom of a Christian, right? Like says Paul says, you know, I, I'm free with regards to all, so I made myself slave to all. Mm-hmm. And this kind of it seems like. This kind of accommodation he makes to contextualize this glorious, urgent message he has about the crucified Christ and the redemption that comes through him is it is a real it's a sense of joyful urgency, mm. and and he'll he'll sort of think furiously uh, and do anything he can to make that message
1: clear. Yeah, this verse 22 is like the key for all you know, late 20th century church growth strategies, right? It's, it's like the rationale for every sketchy liturgical decision that's been made in the last 50 years <laughs> for the baby boomers. I'll play baby boomer music and, uh, Hey, why don't we have some clowns presiding over communion? You know, that'll bring the clowns in or, or whatever. Um, bring in. the clowns. <laughs> that is actually a thing. Um, came across it sort of by accident in one of my liturgical studies courses. Um, on youtube um yeah but uh that's like in every every like how to do church better kind of book that's been published since like the 80s this is the proof text uh become all things to all people um what you have to read into that though is what comes right before it um which is great you know i'm free from god's law but i subscribe to christ's law (laughs) which is a parentheses in the NRSV, like, how do you, yeah, how do you parse that? You know, I'm under God's, I'm not under God's law. I'm free from that, but I'm under Christ's law. You know, that has a cross involved in it. (laughs) So, um,
0: and it's the law of love, right? I mean, like, you know, this is, you know, I mean, Jesus is, is the rabbinic parallels when Jesus says, you know, the whole law is love the Lord, your God, like your heart, you know, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so, I mean, the thing that, it's hard right is that the law is powerless to produce what it demands mm-hmm. it's only the gratuitous love of God that can actually make us lovers. Mm. We have to be beloved before we 're lovers
1: right right and whenever I read First Corinthians, well, first of all, I just love the whole dumpster fire nature of what that what that church must have been like, like we just love to have been a part of observing. And you know all the all the church renewal movements that want to be like the apostolic church or the first century church. You know? yeah. No, you don't. <laughs> you want to be like Corinth, no, you right? Don't. <laughs> that's that's our goal. Um, but it just seems like you, you have to read it in between chapter one and chapter fifteen. You know, chapter one, everything's foolish next to the cross. Chapter fifteen, the whole purpose of this is resurrection. Um, and and what Paul's doing in chapters, and really, really chapter eight, the whole idol, uh, meat offering dispute is just bleeding over into, you know, what rights do I have as an apostle in chapter nine? Um, it's all of that paradox, you know, I'm free from the law and yet I'm bound to Christ. Um,
0: yeah, this is Luther's point in the freedom of a Christian, right? Like you're Lord of your Lord of all in the sense of you're free so that, you know, people's expectations or their religious superstitions or, your in-laws perception of you, need for their (laughs) acceptance or whatever, whatever it is, you know, the, 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 you know, need to please your DS or whatever. (laughs) These things like you're actually free from those, which actually has the paradoxical effect of making you really be able to serve them. Right. Because it's sort of like Mm -hmm. you treat somebody, I mean, you're nice to any person you date for the first couple of months. Right. Why? Not for them, but for you, Mm -hmm. because you want their, you want their love. Right. But it's actually when you're, when you're not thinking about what you can get it's like it's very mm. interesting the story uh spurgeon told we uh, about these this farmers you know in this medieval kingdom or something and he, he he's a poor serf farmer and he brings this king the the a, ca- a massive carrot right it's just <laughs> this huge carrot it, it can only fit it in this card he said king you've always been a good king you've protected our family and my friends, and I wanted to give you this monstrous cat. It grew on the land, you know, that I farm. You know, he's a te- he's a serf, uh, and I want you to have it. And the king was so moved, he gave the serf that land. Well, the court royals are scandalized by this. The next week at the audience, one of the one of the dukes or one of the lords brings this king in this horse. It's the it, you know he owns the best stables in the land, and it's the finest horse he has. And he gives it to the king, and the king's completely nine plus He's just not moved at all. And the royal, this lord, is scandalized. He says, well, "What? this farmer gave you this carrot, and you gave him land, and I give you something that's much more valuable and honorable than a, a freakish carrot. He said, no, the difference is the peasant gave me the carrot. You were giving the horse to yourself. Mm. And so the sense in which real, the law really frees you up to not be calculated in your love mm-hmm.
1: which is i don't know if i'm jumping the gun here but that's what's happening in mark one jesus heals
0: speaking of transitions let's just move on perfect transition funky.
1: <laughs> sorry about that first time podcast Perfect transition jesus heals peter's mother-in-law and what's the first thing that she does she oh yeah she, she serves. serves yeah yeah and which, yeah. which, which yeah. some people have argued is makes her the first deacon um that's, that's the original diaconos in the new testament.
0: Um I'm always worried when people like read into a like, church offices, <laughs> yeah. I remember a guy, a conservative evangelical presbyterian friend of mine, someone asked him why are you a presbyterian and he said it's the church government of heaven, <laughs> elders around the throne. <laughs> yeah. And he said that without any cynicism. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like I'm like wow, yeah, I, okay. Not to bore <laughs> no, you with the minutia to, of all right, united methodist polity, um but you know we've discerned our own transition in that you know about 20 years ago and and earlier the deacon was like a probationary step to becoming an elder like you were ordained a deacon and then you did like a probationary two years and then you were ordained an elder and and i think wisely the church decided that wasn't quite you know what the what what the apostles had in mind and so so now in united methodist tradition you can discern ordination to one of those two paths um You either become a deacon or become an elder. You don't transition through one in order to become the other, Um, which I think is probably more accurate biblically.
0: A couple of weeks ago where I saw Presbyterians in the the, uh, lectionary readings was in in Acts where Paul says, uh, have you received the Holy Spirit? We've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Those are your early Presbyterians (laughs) in Acts. Cracked bells and washed-out horns, blown into my face with scorn. But it's not that way. I wasn't going to lose you. I want you. I want you. I want you, so bad. Yeah, so, 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 Mark you. one. We have an, it's, an inter- it's an interesting text because we have this healing of uh verses twenty-nine through thirty-nine. We have the healing of Simon and Andrew's. Mom, then we have these, all these people are sick and possessed with demons and the whole city gathers around the door of this house, which it's kind of freaky when you think about it. Uh, And it's funny because the people seem to see Jesus as a wonder worker, but the demons really know who he is. Yeah.
1: So Scott, that's my question for you. Verse 34, Jesus would not permit them to speak because they knew him. What is, what's going on there?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the messianic secret, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, this is, you know, a lot of ink has been spoiled, <laughs> has been spilled on this, you know. But I think one of the things that's interesting is that Robert Capon, in his fantastic book on the parables, um, it, it talks about how he sees, if you look, and he's you, looking at the Gospels of the Holy, thinks there's three sets of of of, of parables. The first of the parables of the kingdom, where the, the kingdom is present, Mysterious and Catholic, like it's all over the place. Its presence is a mystery, and it's not just um in the future. Like John the Baptist comes preaching, like many apocalyptic Jews, uh, not yet, but soon. And Jesus is preaching already, not yet. And then he thinks that around the feeding of the five thousand, where however it goes in the story, and some somewhere around the Peter's confession, the parables change to what he calls the parables of grace, which take on a death and resurrection mm. theme. And then in the Holy Week, you get the parables of judgment, uh, which are you know which ultimately Jesus is the judge judge in our place but depict you know the judgment the apocalyptic judgment and i think that you know canfins is basically around the feeding of the 5000 it, jesus still looks like a normal mess- messianic figure <clears throat> he looks like someone on a political campaign even if you, if you're misunderstanding him you could get that and so i think something about this early part of the ministry it, it, it i mean it, jesus is always confounding his the people you know, his hearers. But more so early mm-hmm. on. I think that like that he's way easier to misconstrue early on. And I think that's part of why early on there's the muting. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Uh, so just in the, the couple of verses that come before that, the, the a man with an unclean spirit like launches out with these identifications towards Jesus, right? He says, I know who you are. You're the holy one of God. And and it and just before that he says, Why have you come? Have you come to destroy us? and and when I preached on this, I, I said this was the damning of faint praise. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Jesus is holy. He is of God. But that's not quite it. Like, just a few verses earlier, as he comes up out of the Jordan, he's identified as the beloved, uh, the the one, the son of God. You know, holy one doesn't quite get there. You know, it rings true. It's not wrong, but it, but it's not the full picture. Um Similarly, Jesus is not on a mission to destroy, right? You know, what's the one verse everybody in America knows from the Bible, John 3:16? Come that none should perish, but that everyone have everlasting life. Sure if the destruction of evil is part of salvation, but that's not the whole thing. You know, come to destroy us? Okay, maybe, but I really came to save. So so I think Jesus just had enough of uh <laughs> this redirection. Um he he's not going to let the de- he's not going to let evil spirits um give half-hearted accounts of what he's up to or who he is.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's something to that. You know, it's really interesting, too. I was looking at this passage in Frank Lake where he's at his his book, Clinical Theology, which is sort of a hybrid psychiatric theology textbook, which is like a thousand pages long. But in it, he talks about, he's quoting Kierkegaard uh, in the journals. He says, those who have ears for the demoniacal will often have found that the truth is there as soon as the statements are reversed. A demoniac's self-will in man or woman cries out, one thing I cannot endure, that is to be ruled by anyone. Understand that the uh, other way around, understand that the other way around, and you have the law for his cure. What he needs, what he not only can endure, but what in fact he needs is to be ruled by someone. <clears throat> this is certainly due to the fact that the demoniac himself knows the cure, at least in a sort of clairvoyance. But as a demoniac, he loves his sickness, is afraid of the cure, and therefore calls out that the cure is the one thing he cannot endure. It would be extremely harmful mm. to me. Yeah, I think that's the, the, the essence of mm. sin, right, is, is wanting to judge what's fitting for ourselves. I mean, Bart talks about this in the church dogmatics. Is where he, In one, he talks about Jesus as the judge judged in our place. And he thinks that the essence of sin is we all want to be the judge. Adam and Eve in the garden want to say, we want to judge mm-hmm. what to eat. And what's fitting and what's right for ourselves, and he says the one ironic thing is Jesus really is that is not a, con, a conflicted or misguided judge. He really is the one that can even he forgives sins. Wow he spe- you know, uh, and yet he's judged in our place indeed that we could be free from the burden of judgment
1: and of course, there's this you know um, great uh, throw to the, to the Pietists where Jesus shows that in order to really be faithful. You've got to get up at O Dark Thirty, go out by yourself, spend hours alone in prayer. This is for the A lot the of guilt trips. <laughs> A lot of self-righteousness. That, these verses have launched many guilt trips for many pulpits over the years.
0: Well, it's interesting, like, in the healing of the leper, right? Isn't, isn't it, Mark, in this earlier where uh, Jesus is alone in, in, the desolate, in the desolate places, right? And he heals someone and they go back. And, of course, they tell people and everything. And then it says, and Jesus had to stay in the desolate place. I mean, there's almost this substitution mm-hmm. in the healing. Like, they trade mm. places. So, I mean, you get these miniature death and resurrection stories, like, all over the Gospels. If, if you know, if you have ears to hear. <laughs> right. Glenn, thanks for doing this with me. And blessing, and thanks for mentioning, I'll link to your site on the, sh- on the show notes. It's really kind of you to uh, give a shout out. Absolutely.
1: I listen every week. I, I appreciate what you do, Scott.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate you being on.
1: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe. Or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Glenn for coming on the podcast. You can find his stuff at meaningfulworship.blogspot.com. And thanks to you again for listening. Till next
1: time, friends, fare thee well.